In today's episode, we delve into the profound journey of Ali Kelly, a force of resilience and compassion. As a child, she faced the shadows of her mother's struggles with depression and suicidality, igniting a lifelong commitment to mental health advocacy. Ali's story transcends personal hardship to become the CEO and founder of Mind Blank, impacting over 50,000 lives through Innovated Forum Theatre. Throughout her career, Ali has worked with marginalized communities, the homeless, those afflicted by substance abuse, and individuals needing mental health support. Join us as Ali, a professional trained singer and holder of a master's in social justice, unveils her unwavering dedication to early intervention and prevention. With numerous accolades, including the Mental Health Matters Award, her insights promise to be a beacon of hope. In a world where silence echoes, Ali Kelly's mission echoes louder. Welcome, Ali, to Wellness Spring. It's so lovely to meet you finally. Thank you, Beverly. It's great to be here today. I look forward to our chat. Yes, and congratulations again on receiving and finishing with a high distinction for your HDR research. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing how your work can contribute to future generations. And to kick off, could you please explain why you chose the title for your thesis, the theatre-based intervention supporting mental health and preventing suicidality? Mm. Um, so the field that I work in has certainly been using arts-based models in the mental health sector and in the suicide prevention space. So my thesis was all about, well, not just the work that I do with mind blank, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, but it was more about what else exists in the world using theatre, so drama-based practices. So that could be role play, there's various aspects of improvisation, skill building, uh, drama therapy, psychotherapy, psychodrama, you know, that are used in the sector that we don't often hear about. So I was really curious to say, well, what exists in the world that are using arts-based methods, particularly using theatre or drama, and how are they measuring their outcomes? Because we want to see outcomes to show that these interventions could be benefiting mental health outcomes and a reduction of suicidality that could be appearing in the population. So for me, there's a thirst for uh, collecting the evidence because worldwide there's a rich uh, space sharing the advocacy for arts-based methodology in health promotion, for example, and also in the use of helping support some mental health advocacy. But here in Australia, we're not seeing that yet. And uh, an example that came up in my research, because a systematic literature review, we did find uh, uh, 28 different interventions used around the world, measuring mental health outcomes, and zero were in Australia. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realise that. You know, yeah. having come from a mental health background as well as a psychiatric nurse and done various things. Um, and that was going to be one of my questions for you, you know, because mental health issues often carry a global impact. And I was going to ask you about how you see the role of internal collaboration and awareness in mm. addressing mental health challenges on a broader scale. So having mm. revealed what you said, how can you change what's happening in Australia right now to be on the global picture? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I'm not surprised that we didn't see much research to advocate evidence here in Australia because one of the challenges is the mental health sector so heavily relies on clinical-based outcomes. And clinical-based outcomes, though, we're interested in research. Oh, can, you, can you share that your intervention, uh, someone that was suicidal before the program, they're no longer suicidal after the program, and you follow that uh, for a six weeks or six-month period so they're no longer you know, suicidal on that longer-term picture. And we're struggling to measure interventions even in the health sector, yet alone using an arts-based model to do that. So there is a lack of evidence. Uh, we keep seeing a repeat of the same kind of interventions continue to get funded. And the clinical space is an illness space. So it's waiting for people to get sick. And then these budgets are kind of coming in so that we can fund the hospitals, so that we can fund the mental health services. And unfortunately, there's still a very heavy lens on the scope of the mental health sector that we see today. I do see that there is hope. And just an example of some interventions that we're seeing internationally that are moving us forward is in the UK in particular, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there's an arts on prescription model have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't delved into it. That's okay. So let me just explain. Uh, if you go to a, a GP uh, in the UK, so let's say London, what they discovered, so a patient could be going to the GP so that they can get a referral so that they can get on some antidepressant medication, for example. And they could be needing that prescription because they're experiencing depression and isolation. But what they realized is sometimes there's people on repeat going back through those cycles where they're going back and getting that next script because they're feeling isolated and depressed. Now, the arts on prescription model allows the GP to actually support a prescription of a 10-week art class right, wow. to break the cycle because what could be happening is that person could be at home isolated and has no community around them. But giving them an art prescription gets them out of the house and it gives them purpose. To sit next to community connection is made and all of a sudden we can break some of those cycles. So there's definitely some emerging practices internationally that have picked up on the value of arts-based practices to help in this wellness space. Uh, and what we can do here in Australia is there is some advocacy already in terms of can we uh, can we use a model of arts and prescription here, you know? So it's good to see that we're questioning that. Uh, I am seeing an emerging space here in Australia for arts in recovery, meaning a bushfire or flood comes through and sometimes the arts-based practices are being used to heal community, bring community together, help share stories, help create a legacy. Uh, when we are sharing stories, we can advocate that message of hope together. But where I'm seeing the gap is arts for wellness. Right? Why are we still waiting to get sick and then kicking into these practices? What can we do to, to advocate more of this well-being space so that we can provide and educate the next generation and ourselves with skills so that we don't have to fall as hard into the mental health and mental health issues that could manifest from life's everyday challenges? Yeah, well, when you think about what we've just gone through, especially in Victoria with the constant lockdowns and, you know, a lot of people have had to reinvent themselves, um, mm -hmm. their jobs are no longer there and so forth. And um, it's funny, like you're talking about the arts and theatre, because years ago, I helped a friend probably about 25, 30 years ago, helped a friend build a holistic business network. And he involved a lot of actors 
and once a month we would do play acting and it was like who's behind the mask so it was all about role play um yeah. you know we were just like all different types of therapists going for a business meeting we'd have that option and that was so much fun you know mm -hmm. and um I believe in prevention rather than cure. So I'm really mm -hmm. surprised nothing is happening, you know, waiting. Mm -hmm. Because since the lockdown, I know that um, depression rate has gone up, suicide rate has gone up globally. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's good to hear that you've had some experience with role play in a health setting and it brings community identity and humor right uh yeah. from what i could see is role play actually has a long long history and i think even psychodrama and improvisation is tracing back to the 16th century some of these initial concepts uh, where it's most used here in the here in Australia in the healthcare sector is things like training health practitioners. So training student nurses to pick up signs of mental health. Uh, role play can really help us embody some skill building to help create a safe environment to then put it into practice. So. Uh, I guess that's a gift that I can bring to the world is I definitely am an advocate in using theatre-based models. What can we do to use that fun, safe environment to skill up people to know what to do in a time of need uh, well before they need it so that they can continue practising, applying these skills and also embodying what prevention and early intervention look like so that we are knowledgeable and aware for times like the post period of the lockdowns. Uh, I know that families are still struggling. There is this aftermath of, yes, with the adults, it's this big surgence of job losses, recreating lifestyles, making different choices, starting over again. Uh, with the children and young people we're seeing in the schools, uh, this increase of disruptive behaviour. I'm not sure how exposed some of your community have been to it, but boy, have I seen phases of this wave of teenagers that are coming through that I think during the lockdowns, it's like they had this safe space at home and now there's this like uh, wave of rebellious disruptive behavior you know they're trying to find out who they are with this big pattern disruptor that's come through and the waves of mental health roller coasters that they're needing to ride through this motion it's phenomenal uh to see that behavior popping out and in schools we have a lot of um teachers that teach a burnout and that don't yeah. understand how do we address these high needs in our children and young people because they themselves may not have the skills or they themselves may not be emotionally regulated. And I'm, I'm hearing a lot of teachers defaulting back into this discipline, uh, disciplinarian, like talk down, create structure, put boundaries in place that, Sometimes it means that we've got children that have undiagnosed mental health issues or neurodiversity that is being punished because there's this unawareness as to, well, what else can we do? So there's still waves of this aftermath of COVID that I think society in general is going through. Um, but I am an advocate of prevention, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah. One barrier I see with prevention is it's a lot of common sense. Most of us know what we should be doing, but it's a matter yeah. of are we actually doing it? Are we embodying it? Are we making these micro habits? Uh, how do we translate that into everyday action to make sure we're thriving as our best selves? Wow, you unpacked a lot there. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, um, I mentioned that my niece just received another um, degree and she was studying 
um, because when COVID hit, she thought, well, I can't do work at doing events and organizing. So she became a student teacher. And the numbers of schools that she's gone to and the sickness level of the teachers, there's so many off sick and she's been offered work mm. absolutely everywhere. And that's mm. going to affect your morale and the morale of the children as well. You yeah, know, so yeah. it's a... Definitely. Uh, I'll just comment on that because what I'm seeing from working in the social services now for the last 12 years, so I've been around for at least a decade, that what I'm seeing is we have an old system that's holding the education space up. And same with the health space, because the health space, we're doing what we've always done. And we're hoping if we keep injecting more money into the old system that we'll see improvements. And these models are being smashed apart by the needs that we're seeing now. And with the teaching space, I'll comment on that one. Yes, the teachers, there's a, quite a lot of burnout and fatigue. But where we can empower people to turn that around is true leadership that's purpose-led, that's prioritising people, you know. If we can step off this I'm too busy syndrome and create a culture where we are prioritising our people, our staff, every single one of those teachers to self-regulate, uh, if we can be realistic with the job expectation so that we're not asking too much from our workers. Uh, we can start to create patterns of wellness that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, this is one of those barriers of prevention because it's like, help me, sink or swim, you know, shit's hitting the fan, I need to do something, you know, people want instant results. But prevention and early intervention is medium to long-term results and it starts with work. <laughs> and once you've done the work, you've got to keep doing the work, you know. So these systems will still see people cycling through them because they're not wanting to change, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like I don't envy these teachers because I've got some fr friends and colleagues that are teachers and they've shared like the amount of expectation the Department of Education, for example, can put onto them. You're looking like one child should be experiencing 16 years of study, not 12 years. So our teachers are doing a great job of cramming that all in to do the best they can. And unfortunately, not many of them may come from backgrounds of high mental health literacy or maybe they don't have the right leadership structure that's supporting them with some of these high needs um, which echoes through some of that burnout and fatigue that we're just generally feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you you have had an amazing journey and mm -hmm. um, you talked about school and, you know, some people missing school and so forth, but you actually missed a lot of school. So would you like to share with the audience maybe a pivotal moment in your childhood that influenced your dedication to the mental health advocacy and found in Mind Blank, which you mentioned? Sure. Um, I actually do share my personal story quite a lot in the sector and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm quite proud of it. So uh, what I will start with is that I actually have the traditional bloodline of the Peruvian Incas. So oh, my mom wow. comes from Peru and she lived in, in a third world country. So that means she was exposed to riches and she was exposed to poverty. And the first memory that I have of mental illness in the household was age six. And that's actually the moment that I became a carer for my mother who has constantly been challenged through suicide throughout her life. Uh, so I do very distinctly at that age remember just this one instance where I go into her room and the lights are out and the curtains are shut and she's got her drapes over her and she's just sobbing, you know. And in that moment, 
she couldn't find something positive to, you know, share with us all. And I remember going to my father who has seen these cycles before and he was like, don't worry about it, she'll get over it because he's seen these patterns come in and out. And I do have an older brother that's about two and a half years older than me who was just much, uh, much, it was much easier for him to kind of revert into the other room and just play computer games. But at that young age, I remember not knowing what to do. So I used to crawl into bed and cry with her. And I, sh- I share that because I'm proud of it because that's where I started to learn empathy, you know. And just going back to mum's story in Peru, I don't know her horrors, but I can share a little bit to help you understand is uh, she was involved in sex trafficking, age 6 to 13. So that's huge, you know. And her her journey of getting mental health help, I mean, she finally started seeing a trauma counsellor in her 60s. So there's this long journey of us as a nuclear family cohort uh, surviving with mental health issues in the family. Um, I myself am a survivor of PTSD, so, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree there. But... I've been through the system and I got spat back out again and I've seen all these different, like, opportunities that could have been there that just weren't there, so these gaps in the system. uh, I now can stand proud to share the amount of skills that I've developed, particularly in the suicide prevention space, that I channeled all of that into starting a charity called Mind Blank uh, in my early 20s. And Mm. to date, we've now helped reach and support over 50,000 Australians through all sorts of walks of life to help build up mental health literacy using interactive theatre methods to tell stories, provide a safe space, you know, and skill up community to know what to do in a time of need. Wow. Um, just to go back to your mum, were you born in Peru or did your mum move to Peru, uh, to Australia? Yeah, no, I was born in Australia. Uh, and I definitely have uh, been involved in all of the Australian um, schooling systems. And it's interesting yeah. now looking back on that in terms of what were the pathways of potential support throughout that childhood? Because I don't remember many people actually intervening and I think that's just stigma, right? Uh, I think one one of those barriers as to why mum didn't get help was that shame of, uh, oh, if I tell someone they'll throw me in the mental health ward or... Uh, what stay? What happens in the family stays in the family. Uh, but I remember my year one report card because I found mm. it years later. I got this box of possessions when I moved out of home. Here's your stuff, mm. you know. And I read through my report card, and it had shared, you know, Alison is doing well in art. So back in year one, I had some strengths mm. in art. Good. But I was falling behind in reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that's because due to the absence from school. And I don't remember being absent from school at all. Like I had an older brother that had asthma. So from time to time, he took time out, but I don't remember it. And I had to pull my mum up and say, What was this about? You know? And she had admitted then that, you know, uh, I I did take time out because Dad knew that if us kids stayed at home, she wouldn't hurt herself. So, you know, from back then we were playing a very vital and important role. Um, I will just share the advocacy that I do do in the suicide prevention space is it's a taboo subject uh, that people just don't understand and often it's coming up because there's something much bigger under the surface. And the best thing that we can do for our people, our loved ones and those around us is provide a space of unconditional support and listening. I can't tell you how many times that, yes, I've intervened and called the 
emergency services, etc. But actually, usually people just need an ear to hear them out. And during that short time that you're waiting on the phone, they all of a sudden feel much better and bounce back. So my two cents is there is a way for us all to build up our own literacy to make sure that we can hold space for others but not carry their weight, you know, and understand mm-hmm. what to do if 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 it seems like it's a much bigger challenge than you yourself know or can understand, referring it through to the right pathways in the right time because, unfortunately, mm-hmm. quite a lot of human nature, we wait for a crisis and then we seek help and that's when it's most traumatic for those that need that help. And sometimes the the institution itself can cause more trauma. And so it's very counterproductive. Uh, Mm. And the last thing you want is to, I'm finally ready to seek help and I'm in a crisis and you get put with a six-week or six-month waiting list like because that's just sometimes a reality of what our services are. Yeah. It's it's interesting when you talked about the stigma because it took me back to the early days when I was a psychiatric nurse And I really felt for the families and I was working with a crisis team and going out and I realized there was um, a need, you know, to bring mental health awareness and talk about psychosis and neurosis Mm -hmm. and various types of disease, because, you know, we are one mind, body, spirit. And it's interesting because I interviewed Dr. Adi Zama, really forward thinking psychiatrist recently Mm -hmm. from London. And he said, just because a person might peer out of sorts, you know, mentally, don't label them psychiatric, you know, Mm. could be a physical thing, you know, your bloods are out of whack and so many other Mm. things. And we are a whole and it's about being able to delve deeper and see the the big picture and, Mm. um, you know, find out what's going on. Because like you Mm. mentioned, it's good. Most of the time people just need a listening ear, you know, someone to feel their presence, to feel here. Because most of us, like when I grew up, it was like, shh, big girls don't cry, be quiet, sit in the corner, don't talk with the adults. So we're suppressing our emotions down. Yeah. And and we just want to be heard. And yeah. um through my work as a psychiatric nurse and healer and counsellor, I just know, you know, most of the time people, you know, they come alive when you just sit there and truly present for them, mm-hmm. you know, instead of looking out the window and, yeah, and, oh, my next client, you know, just being there for them, whether it's family or friends. And mm-hmm. Going back to your brother, like he was only two and a half years older than you. And I think boys and girls deal with things in different ways as well. It's like Mm -hmm. that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. But Mm -hmm. in the bigger picture, you know, how, because obviously you suffered with depression. um, Did your brother go down that route or how did your brother cope and your father as well? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, It's interesting because I've just recently spoken to about 200 uh, public servants, actually, the federal government at at lunchtime, come and chat to us about Christmas, the end of year, and, you know, what we can do to kind of advocate wellness, wrapping up the silly season, but also knowing that the silly season is quite a challenging time for some. You know, we see incidents go through the roof and, uh, you know, there's more hospital visits, all sorts of different accidents and loneliness. So the reason I'm sharing that I spoke to them is I was thinking it made me think back and what have I got to share about this time of year? And Mm -hmm. in all honesty, I can share that early years, depression did come through, particularly around Christmas time. And in the most recent years, we've seen bipolar come through. 
so an example, bipolar was actually fun because uh, it was things like we were celebrating and we were celebrating big time. It wasn't just one Christmas tree that we had up. There were six Christmas trees that year and there were so many decorations in the house that I stopped counting after I saw 200 or more Santa clauses that had been put up, you know. Uh, and in the most recent times, unfortunately, we're still seeing some challenges. Suicidality pops up every now and then and sometimes psychoses, you know. So what I'm trying to say is that mental health journeys can sometimes be lifelong journeys. And uh, there's treatment, you know, you come from the psychiatry space, like we do have treatment, inpatient treatment, medications, etc. But I tend to find their temporary help reduce some of the symptoms, but it still requires ongoing work. People need to have like this ongoing work to keep balance in their life. Um, and in terms of my family's history and what we've experienced, I think just generally human nature, we tend to have coping mechanisms that get us through some of our worst times that when COVID comes, all of a sudden you realise they're outdated. <laughs> so, I think that, so the space we're in now uh We've actually, as a family cohort, we've been a bit more proactive in seeking support through some of their carers associations because it really is next level challenges as we have a family member who is entering into, uh, how do you say it, the ageing population, our elders, you know, could there be dementia popping up, all sorts of different needs. So... What we're finding is we are needing to skill up on our own mental health literacy to know what that next level of support we can bring to a loved one. And uh, the carer's role really is all about lifelong building our skills too because when a loved one's, you know, uh, feeling it, we also could feel it. So we have to do our best in making sure we're maintaining wellness and creating our own hobbies and putting our own boundaries up in place, but also creating a safety net for ourselves and others around us to be able to cope for the long term. Because burying your head in the sand uh, is a short-term strategy that can kind of get you so far that really the space we're entering is that collective vision. And I will just share that I feel very privileged and lucky to be working with quite a few Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. And what I wanted to share is the traditional people, the Incas in Peru, our bloodline is, there's some very close similarities between the traditional people around the world. And our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander elders every day, I'm just so impressed with new learnings all the time. But what I've seen in community is sometimes communities don't even have a word for mental illness. So mm. it's this collective holistic vision of a self. Who am I? Because if I understand who I am, I know where I've come from and I know where I stand, you know, then who's in my community? Who is that around me? Who's that support mechanism that can be there for, for, for life, Right. And then it comes to the physical body, the health, the well-being, our brain, our wellness. And unfortunately, the medical model focuses on that last bit only, you know. Mm. But the wisdom that I wanted to share with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities or lens on mental and emotional well-being is this beautiful, healthy, uh, healthy, well, holistic vision of life. and. Not all communities are there. Like we've got a lot of struggle, you know, with identity and community and sometimes all sorts of levels of complicated and toxicity. But, you know, that's various realms of intergenerational trauma cycles. And I relate to the intergenerational trauma with mum's story because what I didn't know is that one of my aunties that I met after 25 years, we, we reconnected, and she shared that many women in my family line have come from these cycles of depression and suicidality. 
you know. But there's just so much we can do as a collective cohort to hold space and give love to those who may need a little bit of extra attention. Wow. That's, um, you know, heart rendering. It's like, oh, my dear. But um, where I was born in Wales, um, mm. over the last couple of decades, we've actually got the highest suicide rate in the whole of Europe. And it's nothing to do with class or background or age. You know, the journalists have stopped publishing it now. Um, but yeah, and you talked a lot about community. And when we were traveling, because um, we used to sail on boats, my partner and I, and we spent time in Italy. And apparently in Genoa, um, they've got the longest living people and they're healthy they're all in their hundreds uh not mm. all of them but they live till their hundreds and it's because of community they have community mm. centers and they all meet up and it's like that who you know if you have an issue everybody knows about it and they all stick together they all support mm. each other you know financially spiritually um you know whatever's happening to me is your problem and their problems so they all mm -hmm. come together and how important do you think for mental health is you know community sport and education because you've mentioned education a few mm -hmm. times yeah wow uh phenomenally important is the answer yeah. uh so i've been playing in this suicide prevention sector space for a while now but i'd say that my mind's a little bit odd being having a presence in this space uh we're odd because i tend to find i'll go back to that example is that the mental health sector is an illness model so it's waiting for us to get sick mm -hmm. And what I've seen in the suicide prevention space too is quite a lot of crisis-heavy services, so meaning heavy focus on bereavement support, you know, which I understand. Mm. I've seen families who have tapped into those services and have found value in it, but we're often waiting for things like suicidality to manifest before we're doing anything about it. And I guess for me... The gift that I want to give to the world is I have embodied experience in knowing how to be there for people in a time of need. And sometimes that was a very heavy weight that I lost my own voice with. But that's now part of my story. And me now having a voice is that voice of advocacy that I got to use it, you know. And I have found value in the ripple effects that you can do to be able to help people if we can skill the children up to be able to share the words of what they're experiencing then we can the adults supporting them can help them on that pathway much quicker so in the clinical space, you have half an hour to do an assessment with someone, you know, to figure out do you need help or do not need help, what pathway do we give them? And it's just a missed opportunity if people can't word or verbalise what's actually going on. Uh, so I do see that we can make a big difference if we're able to embed knowledge ahead of time. Then the hope is that we can stop falling down that hill of the sink or swim you know that analogy where there's yeah. that big yeah. and people are at the bridge pulling people out at the end. Well, why don't we go right up to that river and give them those skills so that we can get people out of that river, you know, long time before that. Um, so I guess my message is there is a message of hope. Uh, when I started this advocacy, there was a $1.6 billion billion dollar budget cut on extracurricular activity going into schools so we we're going ahead of the uh, how do you say it? against the grain to try and fund our programs of advocacy before the world was ready for it but mm. in the last few years I'm gonna say before COVID it was just before COVID there is excitement in the mental health sector space where they understand 
the, the Royal Commission came back with a finding where prevention is the number one key area of focus where we can make the biggest difference, you know. Top five priorities, educate your children and your young people, educate these workplaces, you know. So yeah. we've been kind of hanging in there and pioneering this type of work before the world was ready for it. But it's great to see that these conversations are starting to come into priority and with this wave post-COVID of the needs popping up in community, it just shows that a lot of people understand why we need to do better. And when it comes to suicide rates, particularly here in Australia, it's our men, you know, where really there's a missed opportunity that too many families are feeling the sting of the pain and of losing loved ones and we can do so much better than we are. Uh, so I think there's a lot of energy in wanting to make sure that we don't have to keep repeating these patterns um, of loss and despair that come with the impact of bereavement. Yeah, that that's um, that's so important, you know, because it's not something that's discussed. And you talked earlier about ageing and aged care. And my partner and I just in Melbourne because um, his mum's 85. She's just gone through major surgery and mm -hmm. to sort through the aged care packages and so forth. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she had surgery for, had a cancer removed from her bowel. She's got a colostomy and she, it was in private health. She came home to know in an empty house. If we hadn't been here, mm -hmm. we found mm -hmm. out in the public sector, you can start the process going, you know, before mm -hmm. you actually come home. But when it's private, no, you just have to come home. So there's lots. And I've wow. worked with a lot of people and it's, um, you know, we are living longer, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of people are finishing work earlier. And it's like, what mm -hmm. do we do with those extra years? How do we cope? You know, especially mm -hmm. if your family or friends um, have departed from the world and, you yeah. know, we're living in a multicultural world as well. But anyhow, mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. discuss mind blank and what is it? Because I know you are a multi award winner for your mm -hmm. programs. Yeah. Uh, so, mind blank, we're a registered health promotion charity. And what we do is we hire professional actors and we stage stories of lived experience of mental health issues. Now, usually those stories do not go well, but we have facilitated discussions where we get to go back through the action to show people what to do in a time of need, but also highlight and intervene all those opportunities for prevention and early intervention. So we get to kind of embody it, invite the audience in to learn new skills. Uh, now, the model may sound like it's just Children and young people love theatre. Let's have fun, you know. However, there's quite a lot of skill building still needed in stakeholders around the children. So it's us adults as well that need to skill up to, to know how can we support that generation, but how can we self-regulate too? And yeah. sometimes the adults are the harder ones to work with, to be honest. <laughs> We're stuck <laughs> in our ways with these are my coping strategies or I know everything. What good can you tell me? You know, so there's lots of different barriers we come across um, to the various participants. Wow. Um, you're also a singer. So can you tell us about that? <laughs> um. I, I guess I can. I don't do as much singing these days, but I guess in terms of my own journey in finding my voice, uh, literally singing has helped me to do that. So I reflect back on my younger years and I was actually quite shy, quiet and reserved. So probably most of my teachers wouldn't have noticed me. Like I did a really good job kind of holding back and not speaking up or telling people, you know, my presence is there. Uh, it was, I think at age 10 was my first stage debut. <laughs> uh, I was involved in an amateur musical and that's when I found community and singing and, 
and the creative arts does a wonder for children and particularly children from at-risk backgrounds all around the world. We know that creative arts mediums can be so helpful building confidence, overcoming adversity, etc. So I am blessed that I had a gorgeous singing teacher that I still stay in touch with these days who just saw me for who I was and whatever challenges I had faced or whatever obstacles, you know, my family and I were going through at the time, she became a gift of consistency that helped me to find my singing voice. Um, It's interesting reflecting back now because I probably could have, you know, hindsight. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. afraid of performing And it was because what I didn't know then that I know now is the PTSD, the the fright. It had me literally frozen, uh, which was something I had to overcome at the time. But, yeah, people think now, oh, you were afraid of performing. You know, I speak in front of hundreds of people these days, so it's not clearly no longer a problem. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was um, curious because you are a singer whether you use singing as part of the protocols and bringing community oh, yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes we actually used to tour with a cabaret uh, just to set the eyes, you know, to get things moving. Uh, but we ended up narrowing down to interactive theatre methods, uh, yeah. very specifically to try and make a name for ourselves. I don't think my singing career is over, you know, we'll deal with that another day. Uh, but clearly uh, I'm an advocate for all forms of art, you know, and some young people may not relate to drama, for example, so you just got to keep yeah. trying different strategies and I find visual arts is a great way to help kids sit down, you know, scribbling drawing it's this mindfulness practice that just kicks in so I'll do my best to make sure that here in Australia we continue to advocate the value that various creative arts methods can bring not just for crisis and healing but for wellness and recovery and skill building (laughs) yeah well, being Welsh, we grew up singing and we'd have singing in the oh, assembly and, you know, I, I'm i passionate about rugby, so they'd be sh- singing at the rugby union games and so forth. And when I had my cancer, I think singing and um, mm. laughter and being yeah. with friends and went on to New Zealand to watch the British Lions tour. And I just think mm. that healed me so much. So oh, for me, I think cool. laughter, humour, you know, mm. togetherness, community. Um, yeah. And I, I know also I like to write and I teach writing from mm. trauma. Mm. And I saw that you're also an author of a book called The Inca Warrior, a journey yeah. awakening your inner strength. So did that help, for example, with your healing journey? Um, oh, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, look, I ended up finding myself journaling a lot of my experiences, uh, big emotions manifesting. Uh, what I found is when you are creative you'll be creative in one field and it kind of manifests over to another field so I loved writing uh people have shared with me that reading the book it feels like uh looking through like the curtains this is a diary like of the insights as to what's going on so for me it was another way to channel advocacy and to put out the different lenses that you may not see in the everyday. So these are the untold stories and there's so much wisdom in sharing, right? Um, Mm. I just want to reflect on the story you just shared, which was it's so lovely to hear that you found community around you and community helped with healing because I reflect on our older adults, what you said before, I think, like, there's a lot of loneliness here in Australia. Uh, Mm. 
I've seen it in my family. Like my dad's family are the Aussies that have been around for a while. And quite a lot of my uncles and my aunties live in a one-bedroom unit on their own, you know. Mm. And we've lost some wisdom if we don't have community around us because I too can share when you've got aging parents, you kind of like stumble through what is my gut, what's this system. There's all this support out there that we don't even know that exists And the same applies in the mental health sector. If you've not been experienced or exposed to that, how are you supposed to know to go to your GP? And how are you supposed to know what to tell your GP? And it's a bit of a potluck. Does your GP, are they even exposed to the sector? Um, You know, how well-skilled are they in being able to then provide you onto a pathway? So it's a lot of a gamble. And I think that, the opportunity previous generations had is the wisdom that we can share amongst each other, having a cup of tea, sitting down and the intergenerational, we used to all live together. And now that we're disconnected, we've lost what that experience is and we're all stumbling trying to figure it out on ourselves by ourselves, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And um when you're talking about generations, I grew up and we always had, we had like a, a, a Bunsen burner on all the time and there was tea. And every morning people would either come to our house or the neighbor's house. And it was a way of just letting go. So I'm thinking of tribes as well, because they've always had their gatherings and it's where you all share your knowledge and you know um the women would have a cup of tea because traditionally you know women were barefoot and pregnant and um they would all have their little chinwags and while i was traveling recently i seen a group called knit and bitch knit knit and bitch so (laughs) all the women get together and have a good chat (laughs) but you need that you need support and i've always run Um, women's circles or community circles where there's men and women because you need that sharing and you don't realize you know what people are suffering you think you're suffering alone but there's so many people going through exactly the same thing and and I, I truly believe loneliness is a killer and you know, my father-in-law has got dementia, so we know what it's like going through that system. And then when you start talking about it, you find out nearly everybody knows someone or personally in their family. And like you say, it's a stigma about not telling anybody instead of sharing and everybody can support each other. Um, yeah, for sure. I think it's it's just the way that society has ended up. It's the busyness syndrome that we've kind of forgotten some of the rich wealth of knowledge that we can have when we have community embedded around us. Uh, yeah. And I did want to just point out, because you come from the psychotherapy background, but I heard this little insight the other day that I thought, oh, that's really powerful. Uh the reason why therapy and and treatment like that works, uh, and this is just an antidotal way to share it, but it's usually because you've got someone who is emotionally regulated sitting next mm-hmm. to someone that needs some regulation because that in itself is so powerful that can then help breed this wave of more support. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I totally agree with that because, you know, you it's almost like when the students ready, the master appears and you can look up, you see a healthy role model because in our childhood, what we think is healthy might be totally not and so forth. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. I'm aware of the time and I always ask my guests, if there was one thing you could do to change the world, what would that be? What a question. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, is it like, is a big 
thinking or it can be small thinking or anything you're doing amazing things to change the world you've Aww. probably answered the question already just oh, having your wonderful. programs yeah anything well, it can be small yeah i mean i'm thinking small but simple gesture is that whole reminder of the importance of community around us you know uh because going back to that expression, if someone's emotionally regulated, you stand next to someone else, you both become a bit more emotionally regulated. Same can happen if someone is dysregulated. If you're not skilled, then you can go down. Uh, but we can actually create more self-regulation in community so that we don't need to tap into some of these services, right? That's my yeah. ultimate dream. Uh if we could all know what to do in a time of need or if we could all be more understanding in the need to seek help with the create that tribe of people around you that have the right skills so that we can reach out for help before a crisis, uh, yeah. then we don't have to see these health services maxing out and and then hopefully it means when we do need the help, we don't have to wait for these six-week or six-week six months six. waiting mm. yeah and like you say there is waiting lists and we did start mm. the process for my father-in-law pre-lockdown and that mm. already took six months then there was lockdown then they tell you you go to the bottom of the list and you go start again and and there's piles of paperwork that you have to fill mm. out doesn't matter if you're paying privately or going public there's so much mm -hmm. paperwork and yeah. for me I think like you're saying if you prevention's better than cure and if you've got that community you've mm -hmm. got that support so already you yeah. can be seeing the warning signs and saying mm -hmm. okay let's stop the the most the ball in motion now yeah so. for sure yeah uh I, I will share a little technique to give your listeners. I know we're running out for time, but this is just a very helpful technique that I've used myself. But in the suicide prevention space, there's something called a safety plan where it makes someone who could be experiencing suicidality, you know, try and do this before you're at that stage so that you can have a think, who are your five people that if you are in a crisis, who would you call that you know, you know, oh, I can call my brother, for example, because I know that he's always very grounding and that he's known me for years and I feel safe with him. Could be anyone and everyone. So who are your five people that you could go to? And also, like, who are those five services? Because sometimes it's good to make these lists ahead of time, check in with your people, you know, ask them, is it okay if you if you put your name down, you're going to share their um, mobile number, et cetera. Uh, it really is a safety plan for crises, but I'd like to provoke that people start building this for prevention, right? Who are your people? And be very deliberate to say, you are going to be my mental health cheerleader. So when you see signs that I'm not okay and it could look like, you know, my spark has gone or I'm not showing up to things or I'm not, you know, answering my phone that I usually would, you know, that'll kick you into action. And you can help, like, have that honest chat with them to say, well, this is, our, this is what I want from you, you know. I want you to be able to reach out or if you don't have capacity, I want you to be able to pay it forward to the next person whose number's on that list, you know. Or um, here are the things that help me feel good, you know. For me, if I'm overworked or I'm tired or some big mental health needs come into play, a girls' night would be fabulous, you know. So it could be a matter of, yeah. like, Telling people ahead of time, you know, it's your job to, when you ask me how I am, ask me when was the last time I took a day off, ask me when was the last time we connected for a girls' night, you know, little things like that, that we can be proactive about, that helps build awareness and support for ourselves to stay well, and also provokes them to think for themselves, what are they doing to show up in their wellness spot, and it starts to create this, like, a wellness wave because it doesn't have to be five services of crises it could be what are those things that gives you your spark you know uh what keeps you thriving as your best and if it's listed there ahead of time 
it helps the people around you know what to do to support you best because you've already supported that conversation ahead of time. Oh, that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, what sprung to mind was, you know, the oxygen mask on the plane. You have to put it on yourself first. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of people, especially mothers, they put their children first. They put everybody mm -hmm. else first. They're not used to asking for help. But it's mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm worthy. I'm worth it. And yes. this is how you can help me. So mm -hmm, thank mm -hmm. you so much, Ali, for giving up your precious time and your wonderful words of advice. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant chatting to you today.